So we look at this account together in Acts chapter 15. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open and follow along with us. We're going to work pretty systematically right through the passage. We're going to see that it's really broken up into three parts. We have a little bit of background information and travel itinerary as Paul and Barnabas make another trip to Jerusalem. This is their second trip together to Jerusalem since Saul left. We'll cover that in a moment. Then we have some words by the Apostle Peter as he stands up to explain the issue that's at hand. And then you have some words by James the Elder as he gives the resolution of the church, what seemed wise and good to the leaders of the church as they gather to bear witness to the Apostles' teaching regarding the gospel as it is also in line with the Scriptures. We'll begin by looking at that first section, just the first five verses there. We have another trip to Jerusalem. Now, just to give us a little bit of orientation, especially if you haven't been with us recently as we've been walking our way through this book of Acts, we first met this man, Paul, that's traveling with Barnabas in Jerusalem. You'll remember that he was going house to house. He was rampaging the church. He was dragging the believers off to prison. We also saw him presiding over the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Some of the kids have done the math in their head, and they've realized Paul's not a good dude, right? All right, he's a real problem. Except we see Paul just a few chapters later, and then finally in Acts chapter 9, Paul, who is not so long ago a persecutor of the church, is now a fellow believer. And more than a fellow believer, he is one who is going out with a testimony about the glories of the gospel, about the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's seen Jesus with his own face. And we see him in Acts chapter 9 take a trip with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. We see him go to Jerusalem with Barnabas to join the apostles and elders in their fellowship And in their ministry, we see a unity building in the church. Now, a good bit of time has passed since that first trip back to Jerusalem. In the meantime, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from the church in Antioch. They've been sent out to share the gospel among the Gentiles. They visited the island of Cyprus, and they've visited the region of Pamphylia. And God has done amazing things. In fact, if you look at our passage, we see in verse 3, So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And as they were making this journey down to Jerusalem, they're describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles that was taking place in that island of Cyprus and in Phoenicia or in Pamphylia. They're describing that in brought great joy to all the brothers to hear what the Lord God is doing in the midst of the nations by means of his word. That phrase they described in great detail, it says. It gives us an increasing confidence in the historicity of this account. These leaders of the church, they're concerned with the details and they're sharing the details as they go. They aren't just making up stories to make a religious or spiritual point. That is the inclination of our culture, to treat the Bible as though it were just a collection of mythologies to to make some deep teaching, maybe a moral teaching or spiritual uplifting teaching. No, these these are people who are concerned with details. 
We have every reason to believe that what Luke is recording for us in this book of Acts is those details. When they got to Jerusalem, in verse 4 it says, they shared with the apostles and the elders all that the Lord had done. Now this is going to become increasingly important as we make our way through the passage, but Paul and Barnabas are giving a report to make it abundantly clear that they They're living in a time in which God is creating a people for himself unlike any other time in all of history. They're living right there when God is going and getting people from among the nations, a people for himself. They're making that clear and the people are celebrating, but there's a problem. As often happens as the stage is set, that there's some great things taking place, we get then to verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, it's not the first time we've seen them show up, maybe cause a bit of trouble in the scriptures, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And almost every time in history when the Lord's doing a, a great work In his church, there are those who step in, and it doesn't matter if it's because of selfish ambition or a simple false teaching or a sinful temptation that they are sharing and indulging in. What they do is they distract the people from the truth of the gospel, a truth that so recently was so very precious to them. It's all an effort to distract them from, to add to or dilute their first love. So that's why Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch and and along the way, the church in Jerusalem are so worked up about this. They're dealing with their first love, Jesus Christ and his gospel. And someone's trying to add to it. and In the end, dilute it. That's what we see in verse 5. These were believers who were supposed to be among the church. They were supposed to have become witnesses to the gospel, but they remain stuck. Yet, as they belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they carried with themselves an an influence and an emphasis on the law that's actually outside of the teaching of the gospel for salvation. Don't miss it. What verse 5 says, carry this in your mind as we work our way forward. It is necessary. You hear that? It's necessary for them to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. We continue on to verses 6 through 11. We see the apostles and elders, as Peter stands up and begins to speak, explaining the issue that is at hand. The apostles and elders, they gathered together to consider this matter, it says in verse 6. So we've already seen elders being raised up for the church. The apostles, right? The apostles who received the the teaching of Jesus, who walked with him and were witnesses to his resurrection. They had handed down to the elders and to the church the gospel witnesses, witness. And as they are doing so, they're raising up these elders like James, who will remain in the church to shepherd it as their ministry spreads among the nations. And what we see is the leaders are gathering together. And the way that they gather is instructive for us. 
They gather as one people. Now, as a people, here is what we have together. All right? At the essence of the gathering of the church in Jerusalem, and it remains for us today, what we have as we gather as one people is we are a people who have been given the life and teaching of Jesus. Do you have that this morning? Do you know that that is one of the things that is sure that we have? We have the life and teaching of Jesus. The apostles' teaching, it's called, as it's been handed down to us in the scriptures. And we have been given the whole of the scriptures. The whole of the scriptures that tells the story of God and that points to the hope of redemption in his Gospel. So we have the life and teaching of Jesus, and we have the testimony of the whole of the scriptures. I want you to remember that as we move forward so that you can see that that's exactly what the church clings to here. They cling to the testimony, the witness of the apostles' teaching, and they cling to the witness of the counsel of the scriptures. Now, in verse 7, we see that again, There's much debate, even when these leaders assemble. They have a lot to talk over. Is the law to be added to the Gentiles so that they too could be saved? But as Peter stands up, there's increasing clarity of the issues. What Peter shares is at the heart of what we have to learn this morning. So let us pay attention. Verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. And what's the choice? That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's the choice? The choice is that the Gentiles would hear the word and believe. God's choice is that God would work by means of his appointed servants that there would be those out from among the nations who would hear the word and believe. As we continue to consider Peter's words, he bears testimony in verses 8 and 9 that God's work is in the heart by a spirit. He says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, how? By faith. And that's worth underlining right there. It's core to the passage. There are really a few statements in this passage that get to the heart of the matter. And Peter goes right there. We should know that Peter would go right to the heart of the matter when he's going to speak. As God did his work of faith in the hearts of the Gentiles who heard the word, he also gives external evidence that he had given the Holy Spirit to these new believers, just like he did among the Jews on the day of Pentecost. The people were hearing the word, and they were believing. And the Spirit is cleansing their hearts, and he's giving evidence that this is So God is being careful to make no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile in the establishment of the church. In regards to salvation, there is no distinction. It is the cleansing of the heart by the design of the Lord, accomplished through the preaching of the word and the work of his spirit. 
It would seem that the point of this group of Pharisees, those that will later on in the scriptures and other places called Judaizers, the point of that group of Pharisees is to make sure that the Gentiles are exactly the same as the Jews. Okay, they, they, They're going to bring them in to be like them. In that, they must, therefore, if they would... If the Gentiles would be saved like the Jews are saved, they must adhere to the law, they reasoned. But the problem is that it isn't by the law that the Jews believed and were saved. How quickly this small group of believers had already forgotten how they were saved. They're right to think that God is going to make no distinction, that there is one way by which they are to be saved. But do they remember that their own salvation was apart from the works of the law? Do they not remember that it is by the grace of Jesus that they, that not only have the Gentiles been saved apart from the works from, of the law, but so too have the Jews been saved apart from those works? They've been saved by the work of Jesus alone. As Peter bears witness here, salvation is the cleansing of the heart by faith. This is utterly central to the message of Acts 15, the cleansing of the heart by faith. The matter at hand is simple. Here's the question. Does God clean the heart by the grace made known in the gospel, applied to the heart by faith, or... Is there something else that God requires in order for a person to be saved? You hear the question, right? And you hear Peter's statement, right? Remember the teaching of the group of Pharisees in verse 5 was, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. So they could be brought in like we were brought in, right? Verse 10 makes it clear that you are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter's conclusion is extremely clear. The teaching of those of the Pharisee party are misinformed. It's placing a yoke on the neck of those that God intended to set free by his gospel. The gospel is both Jesus' fulfillment of the law for us, And the gospel is the taking of the punishment of our unrighteousness in our place. Do you hear that? We are saved by works. We are saved by perfect adherence and performance of the law of God according to his character and righteousness. But it's not ours. It's not our obedience. The law is a yoke that not not even the Jews could bear. Much more of these Gentiles. It's an additional burden. Rather, the law points to our need of a Savior and His great and glorious holiness and righteousness. We're saved because Jesus kept the law for us, working perfectly. And because Jesus took the righteous punishment of the law in our place. And now you want to put that law on the neck of others for them to perform, Peter says. Verse 11 is succinct and clear. But we believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Do you hear that? Peter agrees with the Pharisee party that if they're to be saved, they're going to be saved the same way the Jews are. And it's going to be by grace. It's going to be by the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's where the Pharisees had gone wrong. It's not through any obedience or works or fulfillment of the law by us. It's not by coming under the covenant of law. It's by coming under grace. It's true that both Jew and Gentile will be saved. But that salvation is in the gospel of grace with no distinction. Now, Peter has spoken. The assembly falls silent in verse 12, and they listen to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God did. And then James speaks. Peter has set the stage well for the resolution of the church. He's laid out the core of the matter. And you you hear the core of the matter, right? Is salvation by grace alone through faith alone? Or is there something else we have to do to be saved? Alone. That's the key question of the day. Is salvation by grace alone? Is salvation by faith alone? Now, the account of Paul and Barnabas only serves to affirm the simple and compelling gospel that Peter has already shown. God is working among the Gentiles. God is saving a people for himself. We saw just last week the pagans hearing the witness of the gospel, and many were saved in that city. The fact is God is working among the Gentiles, and it's God's choice It's God's work, and it's on the foundation of the work of Jesus Christ. So when James stands up and speaks in verse 13, look at it with me. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring to Peter there. Some of your Bibles may even say Cephas or Peter in that passage. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. I love this to take from them a people for his name. What's God doing? He's showing up in town after town, and he's taking captives for his name. Isn't that amazing? He's conquering the nations by his gospel, a work of faith in the heart the cleansing work of the Spirit to apply what has been purchased by the Christ and a new people are growing up. Now James, as he's speaking, he's not an apostle. He is an elder. He was a brother of Jesus. He's the same James that wrote the book of James. As an elder, he's not adding anything to the apostles' teaching. That's important for us. The apostles' teaching is clear. Peter has spoken it. Peter's been speaking it since the beginning of Acts, the apostles agree together. What James is doing here is he's reflecting upon the apostles' teaching while considering it in conjunction with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. Listen to that. Do you hear the order, right? He's reflecting upon the apostles' teaching while grabbing the whole word and saying, how does the rest of the word help us to understand what happens here? We do the same thing. We pour over the apostles' teaching, especially as it's found in the New Testament, as we come to know Jesus and his words, his teaching there, his work there. 
Then we open up the whole of the council and say, God, teach me. Give me confidence in the apostles' teaching. Help me to understand more deeply what it is that you have done. James is a great elder. He's a great example for us. Notice that his appeal is to the scriptures. In verse 16 following, he's about to make a point. He's about to make a point that God has visited the Gentiles. He's taking a people for his name. This has been the point of the apostles, both Peter and Paul. They've been making the point. God is at work and he's taking a people for his name. And so as James is thinking about this, he's like, that sounds familiar. It sounds like the prophet Amos. And he offers to us a a count and a retelling of the teaching of the prophets. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. There are three essential things in that section of what James is recalling from the Old Testament for us. First, the Lord will rebuild the house of David. He's speaking of the kingdom of the anointed. He's speaking of the kingdom of the Christ. His people will be rebuilt. What is he rebuilding? He's rebuilding a people. Second, God's rebuilding is so that the remnant of mankind with the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord with them may seek the Lord. Don't miss it. It says it right there that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And it's the Lord, thirdly, who has made his will known. It's so important. I've been saying it the whole time. It's all over this passage. This passage is about the fact that God has chosen the way of salvation. And no group of Pharisees, no small group of people or individual who writes some book that they think might be helpful for the church can add to it. Paul says, if a angel shows up and preaches another gospel. It's nothing. It's a false gospel. The gospel is that God has chosen the way of salvation and he is working by grace through faith among both the Jews and the Gentiles. The prophets agree with Peter, or Simeon in this case, that the Lord has chosen a people out from among all of mankind. The Lord is the one who's established the people. The Lord, to put it another way, is the Lord. Like He's the master. He's the Lord and master of his church. Now the actual quote from Amos, if you went over and found it in the prophet Amos that James is calling to mind as he speaks the truth of the prophets here, Edom, that, that passage in Amos makes reference to Edom. Now, Edom is a great and historic enemy of the Lord and his people. And James takes Amos to mean that the Lord will reestablish his people right in the midst of the great enemy of the land of Edom. You hear that? The Lord is going to establish his people in an enemy territory. 
It isn't that the Israelite people will conquer the enemy land. It's that the Lord will conquer the land and claim it for his name by establishing a people for himself among those who were previously his enemies. Do you hear what the Lord is doing? Oh, he's a conqueror. He's taking land by taking for himself a people by his gospel. Ephesians 2 calls us children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, by his own free and gracious design, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. There in Ephesians, Paul repeats Peter's point. By grace, you have been saved. God is rescuing a people who were once enemies. Friends, that's you and I. The Lord is conquering the nations, not with a sword, but with his word. And oh, how sharp, double-edged is that sword, his word. Look again at history. From Acts onward, the gates of hell cannot withstand the assault and the advance of the church as the gospel makes its way from one people to the next. There's a warning for us there. It's when we use other means that the church is derailed and becomes an enemy of the work of God. But it's when the church goes with the gospel that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The Lord is taking for himself a people. The whole of Acts... And our study has been an account of, look at it, the markers, the word increasing, it says. The word multiplying, the word of God working to establish God's people. That's the the testimony of Acts. There's bookmarks in it that literally end the whole passage by saying the word of the Lord increased in their midst and the word of the Lord multiplied. So when James stands up, In verse 19, and he says, therefore my judgment. He's not saying something that he just came up with and now authoritatively has the right to say. He's listening to the room and he says, clearly the testimony of the apostles and the prophets in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church is this. James has heard all that has been said and here's the truth and wisdom rising to the surface and it's clear that to add to the gospel is to add trouble for the people who have received it by faith. That's what he says. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Much later in his ministry, Paul will share much more on this topic with the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, I would encourage you to jot that reference down in the margin of your Bible there. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You know where they were? They were strangers and aliens. They were off in a foreign land. They were enemies, not the people of God. They were outside of the people of God. We were. But you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. You hear what he says here? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You you heard what the Lord said he would do in Amos, right? He's going to build a people. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. What is God doing? He's taking captive a people from among the nations to establish for himself one new people a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And then James offers a final encouragement. The resolution's clear. Really, we're done with the doctrine, the teaching that we have to receive from this passage. If the church was to remain faithful to the gospel of grace, there was really never any doubt. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is the truth of the scriptures. It's the truth of the apostles' teaching. It's the work of of the Christ. But now the church gives a word of caution to the Gentiles. He really gives what can be summarized in two statements. James and the leaders there, they tell the church, and we won't go into reading all of it, but they actually write a, a beautiful letter calling them the brothers, instructing them to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, blood, and what has been strangled and to abstain from sexual immorality. Both of these instructions have to do with avoiding idolatry. Idolatry is is a problem for the church. To run after another god is to lose our only hope of salvation. There is no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Both food and sexual immorality in the day was deeply wrapped up in pagan rituals and worship of the surrounding nations and cultures. And Paul will share a good bit as time goes on about how to navigate these issues as they find themselves in these other lands. But it's clear both here and elsewhere, listen, whether it's it's to give a firm ask not to participate, like we see in our passage, or if there is an expression of freedom, like we see in 1 Corinthians. In both those cases, The central issue is that both the Jew and the Gentile have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's the concern of the church. Because of this rescue, we have been set free to worship God alone. Salvation has freed us from idolatry. Salvation has freed us from sexual immorality. The way it is expressed in the Reformation, sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now, close with verse 21. Verse 21 is really interesting. I think it's instructive for us today. For... So right here with the word for, he's about to tell us why the church has chosen to give these instructions to the Gentiles. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What James and the church are seeking to do is not lay an additional burden for salvation. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It's not a new law by which they might be saved. The reason for their instruction is not simply purity or morality. 
It's for the sake of gospel mission and witness. This is beautiful. So much of the impulse of our obedience is that we would be faithful witnesses in the cultures in which we find ourselves. You see the why? The four gives us the reason for the above. And the towns that Paul and Barnabas are going to, even though they are Gentile towns, these are also places where the Jews have gathered as well. And they gather in their synagogues and they read the word. You can imagine the confusion of the Jews as they're daily dedicated to observing the law of Moses with faith-filled obedience of the Lord. When they see Gentiles claiming to worship that same God according to the gospel of a man claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus. And yet at the same time, those same Gentile believers are participating in eating food and other rituals that are deeply enmeshed in idolatry. You see, the business of the Gentiles, as soon as they are converted, is to be jealous for the worship and salvation of the Jews that are in their midst. They should be careful in their mission not to take their liberty as a right to take hold of, but rather to lay it down and be careful and clear in their witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This verse seems to admit that the dominant group of the church will be Gentiles in these new cities. And that's what we see take place. But the wisdom and encouragement from Jerusalem, therefore, needs to make sure that the Gentiles do not cut off their ability to bear witness to the Jews about the Messiah and his gospel. That the Jews wouldn't cut off that witness by means of participation in rituals or immorality that's often associated with false religion. The apostles and the elders in Jerusalem want to make sure that the Jews are not left behind in gospel proclamation. When you're thinking about how to live, when you're thinking about obedience, when you're thinking about a concern for the word, I wonder how much of our sin and disobedience isn't just sin. How much of our sin and immorality, our disobedience, even our taking up of our supposed rights is actually a declaration to those in our community that there is another way to live life abundantly outside of the gospel. That we can have Jesus and we can have the gods of the nations. How much of our sin and our waywardness is really a witness to a false gospel? James and the leaders in Jerusalem are concerned for this because it is idolatry. So as we close, let us remember with the church in Jerusalem the gospel that we have received. Let us have confidence this morning. Let us not add other things to the gospel. The salvation is by the grace of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and promised return alone. Applied to the heart for the cleansing of sin by faith alone. Therefore, it is to the glory of of God alone, so that we are a people who obey. We are a people who search the scriptures for wisdom in how to walk. But our obedience isn't the work by which we are saved. That was done by Christ. But rather, it's the fruit of the gift of faith. That's why I often call our obedience faith-filled 
obedience or faith-compelled obedience. You see, you and I have seen our Lord and Savior. We've come to know his way and to walk in it. And our obedience is the fruit of wisdom so that we might be faithful witnesses to the gospel in the communities in which we live. By grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you. We are thankful that you have made known to us the testimony of the scriptures. That you have given us the apostles and the prophets. And you have given us leaders throughout the history of the church to guard us and to pull us back from the brink when we have gone astray. And I pray that this scripture would pull us back this morning. There's a great deal of application in this text for us. And I pray that as we gather in community groups and elsewhere around meal tables and around picnic tables, even this afternoon, we would pay attention to what you would have to teach us, how perhaps we have added other things to what we expect people to do in order to be saved, and how we can have confidence in our salvation in Christ, and how we can lay down some things in our community, certainly our sin and immorality, for the sake of our witness among the nations. Thank you, Lord. We Trust you to work your word in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.